You are listening to the Nerd's Guide to Financial Independence podcast, episode number seven. And today we are talking about investing. Hey friend, I'm Sarah, and welcome to the Nerd's Guide to Financial Independence podcast. I am here to show you that financial independence can be for anyone who wants it badly enough, and that investing in real estate doesn't have to be scary, take a vast DIY knowledge, or involve heaps of debt. When I am not sharing my own progress to FI, I'll be picking the brains of fellow like-minded, debt-conscientious investors. I am so glad that you are here, my fellow aspiring retirees. Hi, everybody. My name is Sarah, and I'm here with Jeremy today. And if you guys don't know Jeremy already, he on Instagram is the Personal Finance Club, which I absolutely love. If you haven't seen his account yet, it's fantastic. And how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. Yes. I'm very, very excited about this interview because I think you do a really good job of making investing less scary for people and a little less intimidating. And so I'm really pumped to kind of talk through terms and try to make it seem like, you know, this is something every person can do because I really think investing is pretty simple once you learn the nuts and bolts. So I, I think agree. that's kind of your mission too, isn't it? To It is because the investing world can be this scary, complicated world. If you're, if you're new to it and you hear the word investing, I think just like this cloud of terms starts rumbling around, rumbling around your head, like Bitcoin and day trading and options and leverage and, and like all this crazy stuff. And it's really pretty easy when you like just get all that nonsense out of there and focus on how you actually build wealth. That's like the tried and true method that every classic book on investing recommends. Once you do just that and ignore all this other crazy stuff, that's just a way for other people to like take your money. um, It becomes a lot easier. Yeah. And before we dive into all the fun stuff, um, tell them a little bit about you and how you got started and kind of how you, how you came to be the first, the personal finance club on Instagram. Sure. (laughs) So my life story in about 30 seconds yes. is I... Your, your elevator pitch. <laughs> right, exactly. I went to uh, college and got a degree in computer science. And then instead of uh, getting a job when I graduated, I started a company as a punk 22-year-old who uh, was too naive to know he shouldn't be doing that. Um, and took about 12 years, but I grew the company um, to a point where we were making about a million dollars a year. And then I sold the company for $5 million at the age of 34. Um, and I owned 70% of the company and my mom owned the other 30%. So we never took any outside funding. Um, and so after taxes and everything, I had about $2 million in my bank account. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked um, for the company that bought my company for two more years. Um, and then I basically, I have always been pretty good with money, I think, compared to most people based on talking to a lot of people about it now. Um, but then, especially when I sold my company, I just started reading every single book I could get my hands on, on personal finance and investing, and learned everything I could, and basically kind of dawned on me that like all these books say the exact same thing, and that in combination with now the last five years of my experience, and then my lifetime of experience before that, um, I've just been investing this money, and so now, even after coronavirus, actually, the, the market just kind of rebounded. So I don't know yeah. exactly. Plus or minus a hundred grand. I think I have about $3.6 million in the bank yeah. now. Um, 
and uh, I am work optional. We were discussing before the yes. shows are like what to call. I don't like love the word retired. I think just because it sounds kind of lazy, like, um, you know, I'm 39 and I don't need a nine to five. So I'm just watching Netflix all day. And sometimes I do that, I guess. <laughs> I try not to do it too much. But, uh, but yeah, but I, so when I quit my job at the age of 36, I did a year of like traveling and coaching beach volleyball in Italy and a lot of random stuff like that. And then um, basically at the beginning of 2019, last year, I decided to do the thing that I really love. It sounds so corny, but I really love talking to people about investing. And like, you know, I feel like in 30 minutes of my time, I can make someone a millionaire 30 years from now, yes. like change their financial future. And that like pumps me up every single time I do it. And so I started Personal Finance Club. And the way that I want to reach the most people, I think where people are kind of spending a lot of their time right now is on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So I post these little bite-sized infographics about how to invest. And uh, yeah, that's Personal Finance Club. It's awesome. And I absolutely love your posts and content I share. I feel like I could share everything you post because it's just very helpful and it's broken down and nice visual and it just demystifies it a bit. And I think it's so easy to get caught up in all the terms. And so hopefully, you know, by the end of this podcast, you'll feel like a savvy investor. No, I don't know. I so. But um, I think the big thing, what's kind of the first advice you give people then? Do you go over terms or do you just start kind of breaking down the common misconceptions or where do you like to begin? I think the first thing I usually t talk to people about is knowing their net worth. Yes. Because I think that the mantra of the broke, that the rat race that people get caught up in is the, the world of monthly payments. It's like, what, you know, when they say, what can I afford? They mean out of my paycheck, like how, how much more can I squeeze out in a monthly payment? And so, you know, one of the worst examples is like buying a new car. And so you go into a car dealership and they say, you know, you look at a car and they, they don't want to talk about the total price. They want to talk about what your monthly payment's going to be. And they draw this little square with like different terms, like, you know, years and different, you know, interest rates and all this stuff. And then you kind of choose your monthly payment. And, but the more you think about the monthly payments, the less you're thinking about the total amounts. And I think when you start thinking about total amounts, um, you start building wealth more. And so people are super concerned about their credit score, which is crazy to me because the credit score is just this metric of how banks make money off of you. But they, you know, but they generally don't know what their net worth is, which is how much money you have. And so if you have a choice between how good banks are at like making money off you or knowing how much money you actually have, I always say know how much money you actually have. And so your net worth is what you own, all of your assets, your house, your cars, your bank accounts, your retirement accounts, 401k, everything, all that added up into one big number, minus what you owe, all your debts, your student loans, your mortgage, your car loan, all that stuff. And so if you have you know, $50,000 in assets and you owe $60,000, your net worth is negative $10,000. And if you ignore that and just pretend it doesn't exist and just keep borrowing more money and living this month to month world, you are going to wake up one day and realize you're broke and can never retire because that income can never stop because you are now an indentured servant to the banks and the payments, right? And so when you start focusing on making that net worth number go up, that's when wealth building or wealth creation happens. Right. And people get so focused on credit score. And my least favorite thing in the whole world pretty much is um, these like credit repair programs. Like I've just had a ton of people spamming me lately saying, you know, will you share about my credit repair program? I coach people. And 
it's just such a secondary measure. It's like, if you are doing well financially and you have in some way, like, like I use mortgages to build our net worth and our wealth. And so I'm going to have a high credit score because I don't carry any personal debt. And so I think it's weird that people think their credit score is something you like work on because really it's, you just pay down your debt and you do better with finances and you pay on time and then not looking at it ever, it goes up. And so I think it's, it's a secondary thing. Like what you're doing in your personal life is leading to your credit score. So yeah, I, totally I just agree. find yeah, these when, programs ridiculous. So. Yeah, and when people put this big focus on, but the focus is just such this like backwards thing because it's like, you know, I want to like do weird things to make my credit score improve, like work, yeah. like pay money to work with a credit repair agency or take out more loans to pay back those loans to like improve the credit score. And then the, like the result of that is just borrowing more money because that's what a credit score is good for is just borrowing money and then borrowing money means losing money because you're paying more money to the banks and so right. exactly like you said like I don't I don't borrow money so I don't care what my credit score is but all I do is like live my life I you know I do have a credit card which I pay for every month and my right. credit score is fantastic because you know because banks know that I'm not like in crippling debt and getting crushed right. right so ignore your credit score like take care of your shit right like pay yeah. your time you know don't go into crippling debt and then your credit score will be fine but what you really want eventually is to not care about your credit score because you have lots of money, right? People right. who have millions of dollars, you know, generally don't care about the credit score at all because they just have money and assets and things that like banks aren't checking to see if they can afford. And even if you don't have tons of money, credit score is still not something you worry about because I like the take care of your own shit. And then, you know, you can have like a credit card, for example, like I keep a couple open and occasionally I'll put some reoccurring bill. Like, I pay Amazon once a year and I run it through one of my credit cards. And that's the only thing I do in that credit card all year is pay my Amazon prime subscription and then pay it back off again, just to say I've used it and it maintains my score. And so if you want to have like Amazon on one and Netflix on another, and then that's the only thing you run through your credit card every year. And then otherwise you use a debit card, like you will have a high credit score if you don't have any debt. So it's very, very straightforward. Just pay your shit on time, take good care of it. Don't have debt. And then, if you want to keep your credit score high, just run like one simple item through your credit card, like a monthly Netflix or something, if you really want to. So, or like your phone bill, that'd be great. Yep. <laughs> something you're already paying already, not buying payments or taking out more loans. It's not as hard as people make it seem. And it's not something you actively have to go out and do, which I find insane. So <laughs> I agree. Um, so after kind of taking care of your personal house, where do you probably start with like 401ks and that kind of boat, I'm guessing for people kind of talking them through that or where do you go next? Yeah. Um, I guess the, the things I always come back to are my two rules of yes. personal finance club, which are rule number one is live below your means. Mm -hmm. And rule number two is invest early and often. Mm -hmm. And so, and I guess the reason that this is like the core, this is like the groundwork, this is the framework, this is everything, because if you don't do these things, none of the th other stuff matters, like day trading, 401k, reverse mortgage options, blah, blah, blah. If, like none of that matters because if you're spending all of your money and you're not investing, you will be broke. Yep. And on the flip <laughs> side, if you spend less than you make and you invest the difference, even if you're not like optimally investing, you'll still be great. You know, like, so if you're optimally investing, maybe you get a 10% return. And if you're just kind of doing a crappy job, you get an 8% return. But if you spend less than you make and you get an 8% return over 40 years, it's still a ton of money. Right. And so I guess as a way to like 
reduce, you know, I think one of, the, one of the sayings is like, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And so I think people who are getting to investing are scared of all these different terms. And I want to say, hey, just remember, spend less than you make, invest the difference, even if it's not perfect, um, then uh, you'll be fine. And so those and are the two things. Yeah. And there's just tons of data too out there that say like just doing something is better and you're not going to be there that far off of the person that tried really, really hard and got into all the crazy stuff. Like you could do better. You might do a little bit worse because of fees, but overall there's tons of research out there that says just do something early and often, or, you know, if you couldn't do early and you're listening to this and you miss the early boat, do it now <laughs> because you have some catching up to do, but I mean, everyone should be investing. And so yeah. that's really how you grow, you know, inflation is always there. So you have your, you know, two to 3% inflation every year. So your dollar today, if you like bury it in the backyard, it's going to be less in the future when you try to buy stuff because everything goes up in price. You know, you talk yep. to your grandma, a gallon of milk was a lot different than it is today. In 10 years, we'll be the grandmas of saying, I remember a gallon of milk was what, five bucks or something. And I remember when a house only cost a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so, what a deal. You should well, see how much San Francisco house prices are in 30 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. things go up. And so it's just something to kind of keep in mind is if you're not investing, you're actually, you know, losing money by burying in the backyard. So you need to be doing something and, you know, why yeah. not learn Sometimes a little bit Sometimes people about. say it. Yeah, they're afraid of the risk of investing. I say you're risking something either way, right? Not investing is even is a risk because you're losing money to inflation. And so you, there's no option that is like this guaranteed you're safe. And so you have to just live in the world we live in and say you have to like follow investing best practices to outpace inflation and eventually have enough money to retire one day. <clears throat> and I think it's hilarious the number of people that are afraid of investing, but just burn money on cars, right. on iPhones, right, exactly. on, yeah, like I'm like one of the most frugal employees in my, you know, in my circle, but I probably save and throw more money into real estate than any of them save. And like, I, like they're, yeah, just like buying stuff. Right. And like, they don't want to risk their investments going down by 20%, but they're definitely going to have lose all of it. You know, when you right. spend it, you lose a hundred percent with no opportunity mm -hmm. for it to go up. Right. So, right. um, yeah. And I think, you know, but it's partially like lack of education and understanding of like what it means to invest and like put, put money away a little bit over time and mm -hmm. see long-term wealth. Um, and it's a little bit just excuses because people don't want to, you know, spend the two hours to take a hard look at, you know, their net worth. They just want to say, okay, what next car can I buy with mm -hmm. my payment Right. and pick the can down the road to when I'm 60 and then I have to wake up and like, you know. I think if you even spend like, I mean, maybe even six months, a year kind of automating all your stuff, you never really have to look at again. Like I'm on a very set it and forget it path where honestly, I kind of like took a year to really deep dive into investing. I read a bunch of books and then I'm like, okay, I'm kind of done. What's next? And that's honestly how I ended up in real estate was you, once you figure out the basics of personal finance, it's not super hard. And I think people just, we talked a little bit about before we got started with the interview that the personal finance industry is like literally made their living off of scaring people away from investing. And I think that's so unfortunate, kind of the, you know, they make it, they make a living on making it complex in the marketing strategies. So I agree. I mean, the reality is, is like, companies do what companies do to profit, right? Whether they're selling cars or whether they're selling credit repair or whether, uh, whatever that, you know, putting billboards up. So if you are just a person that your whole world's awareness is like what you're seeing in marketing, then you're a person who's going to be like optimally 
transferring your cash from yourself to companies who are looking to profit. But if you take a little bit of time and like do some reading, like buy a book or take a class, like you know, not offered by a company, but by you know, a educational um, outlet or something, and and actually learn about personal finance. Right? It's not. It's really not that complicated. Yeah. And all that noise is just there to mm-hmm. like suck money out of the system mm-hmm. to profit. You know, and that's the world we live in. It's a world of capitalism. Yeah. What are your favorite books for people getting started? You know, the one that I that I like because it's simple. Like I am, I'm a simple man. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Investing. It's a mm-hmm. hundred pages. It's on Amazon. And basically, it's like the cliff notes of investing. And so kind of like they just, it's really, it's literally a hundred pages and it's like pretty easy reading. There's even charts and stuff along the way. And it, I love and it, charts. <laughs> yeah. And it like references all the classic books of investing. And like, you know, I like, you know, and, and so I, I mentioned that one because I think that's one that's like, if you read one book and it, it references every other book in there and it's like literally like, it's like the index of all the other classic books. And it's not that's even that awesome. popular of a book. I feel like, I kind of feel bad. I like always talk about this book and it's like, Mm-hmm. You know, like a, it's not like a famous one or whatever, but it, it is like the Cliff Notes. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm a big Jack Bogle fan. He's the founder mm-hmm. of Vanguard. He's like the guy that invented or popularized the index. It's mm-hmm. fun. And so he has some books, but they're like really dry, right? Like you have to be a pretty, yeah. you know, like they say over and over and over. I mean, it makes a very, very compelling case for why you should be buying and holding index funds to maximize your own wealth. Um, but it's, it's pretty darn boring. Like, so like if you are I mean, somewhere- honestly, I think even his forums are kind of boring. Like even the Boggleheads forums get so yeah. deep. I'm like, your average person's even going to be scared away from this. <laughs> so. I, I agree. And like, I, I'm a realist, which is like, yeah, someone who's just trying to like dip their toe and, and like get their bearings. Like they're not going to be like, you know, it's not that hard of a book, but like they're, they're not going to want to read that book. And so, you know, if you, if you have a hundred pages, that one, and so I'd say if, if, yeah, if you're like, if you're on the investing step, like if you're a person, and I think there's really two types of people. If you're a person who's like, I'm a saver, not a spender. I always spend less than I make and I have money. I, I don't know what buttons to click on the, on what app to do it. I feel like a beginner's guide to investing is a good one. If you're on the other side of the spectrum, which is like, you are living in debt, you spend beyond your means and you want to try to fix that. I would say a millionaire next door is a good one yeah. because I think that paints a picture of, of frugality and saying, if you live this life of just burning cash, no matter how much money you make, you will always be broke. There's like mm-hmm. they give examples of like high income earners, you know, making like half a million dollars a year. One who's just flat out broke because he's leasing two cars and has a golf club membership and has a vacation home and blah, blah. And then he's stressed and like terrified of market crashes and terrified of losing his job and his, his marriage suffers. And then the other guy just spends half of what he makes invested in he's basically insulated against everything and he's happier and he has less stress and his relationship with his kids is better and all this stuff. And so I think that like when you kind of like wrap your head around how frugality makes your life better, not worse, and makes you happier, not sadder. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a good book for the people who spend too much money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like I'm a really bad frugal person, but I think it's simplifying your wants down a little bit because I'm still a shopper. I still buy clothes. I still, um, I'm like not an advocate because I still like go to Starbucks sometimes, but it's within reason and it's within your budget. And I know I'm hitting my savings rate, so I don't need to feel bad when I spend because I think people hear the word frugal and think of like riding your bike to work and like, like your classic, like Mr. Money mustache. I think people hop on that train. If you don't know who that is, um, look him up as well, but, and he, or if you're listening to this, but you know, 
riding your bike and like never buying clothes and never spending money and never having fun doesn't have to be the way, but you need to get the gap bigger between what you're earning and what you're spending. Totally. You need rules. to have some kind of gap totally. <laughs> between that and that gap is invested or saved. So I think that's... Yeah. And I'm not the, like, you know, I'm not the moral police of how to spend your money, right. but, I, but I'm a slave to the math, right? Which is like, if you spend everything you make, you'll be broke. But yeah, if you make 4,000 a month and with your 3,000 a month or 3,200 or whatever you decide to spend, it's on shoes or it's on Starbucks. Like, you know, you're, you're allowed to enjoy your money. You like live that's, your life. Yeah. Right? Like that's part of it. You know, you don't need to feel bad every time you buy something that like you don't absolutely need. Like that's not the point of it. The point is to be happy, which is to, you know, have that gap between what you make and what you spend and then invest because you'll be happier today because you know you're not stressed about spending every dollar and you know you're setting yourself up mm -hmm. for the long term and you'll be happier later when you're 60 and you're not deciding whether to buy your medicine or eat cat food because you're flat broke after you know 40 years of spending every dollar <laughs> right you don't want to be that person and i have right. so many followers that came from like dave ramsey roots and so i think there's some degree of confusion when people because we always are very pro index fund. And I think people get confused because they're like, okay, wait, Dave Ramsey recommends mutual funds, but then everyone else is talking about index funds. Do you want to kind of explain that? Sure. So <laughs> I like Dave Ramsey. I'm a fan. I think his show is very entertaining. I think he's a very like uh, outgoing, gregarious guy. Um, mm -hmm. But Dave Ramsey has a business model. Um, and his business model includes his smart investor pros. So when he yep. suggests people start on the investing stuff, he sends them to a smart investor pro. Those smart investor pros pay Dave Ramsey to be like on his list. Um, maybe he vets them. I, I don't have visibility to that, but for sure there's a misaligned incentive there. Mm -hmm. Those smart investor pros have a business model, which is they need to sell you high fee investments because if they don't, they can't pay their own salary. And generally a smart investor pro is just a word for Dave Ramsey's financial advisors or you know mm -hmm. financial investor adv investment advisors. Um, and generally, if you aren't a, if you aren't a person with like hundreds of thousands of dollars net worth of net worth or investable net worth that you're giving to a financial advisor, they're going to charge you these high. They're going to put you in these high fee things, which Dave Ramsey talks about. These they're called loads, which mm -hmm. is if you invest you pay like five percent upfront to invest, which is just crazy. Like yeah. throwing away five percent of your money upfront is crazy. And the mm -hmm. reason you do that is because Dave Ramsey needs to get paid. The investment advisors need to get paid. And by the way, there's a third company here which is the mutual fund companies mm -hmm. and they charge high fees and then they pay the financial advisors a kickback so the financial advisor will put you into their fee and so like i feel bad it's like dave ramsey's like taking these long lambs and to slaughter because if you're just out of debt and you're going to invest for the first time there's like this financial services machine where yeah. dave gets paid the financial advisor gets paid and the mutual fund company gets paid and they all are making like a $4 trillion industry from your little investments, right? And yeah. you know, it all is gonna sound pretty good. They're gonna show you charts and they're, they're talking about your future. And a lot of them are very nice. And maybe some of them like point out their conflicts of interest. I don't, you know, I've seen, there's definitely, I've looked, I probably reviewed, you know, many dozens of, of financial advisors and about, it's about half and half or maybe 60, 40 tilted towards bad ones, I think, you mm -hmm. know, and so, and it's really hard if you're a yeah. new investor to know, like, are you with a financial advisor who's just raking you over the coals with fees, or are you talking to a really good altruistic person who's like laying out your options for you? You know, it's hard to know without understanding the basics of investing. So basically, yeah, the Dave Ramsey way, I think, has a lot of misaligned incentives, conflicts of interest, where an index fund is a way to invest in the exact same stock market that provides all those values, 
with virtually zero cost, and in some cases, actually zero cost. Mm -hmm. And so you guys basically get all the gain with none of the fees. And then you look at the difference over the course of a 40-year career, doing it the index fund way is likely to make you about two times as much money. It's like retiring with 1 million versus retiring with 2 million. Yeah. And if you have like a thousand right now, those both sound like big numbers, but when you're 60 and you want to buy a million dollar house, you're going to wish you still had a million dollars left over and not zero dollars left over. Yeah. And numbers are very much an emotional game. Like, so I'm a genetic counselor. That's my background and degree. So not anything near finance, but anyway, so, but we always learn in our training, like if you're giving people odds about like a pregnancy or cancer risk, like how you present numbers is really important. And so we were always taught to like flip the numbers, like, okay, say like you have a 1% chance of something happening. Well, like people will say like, I was, so I was at my friend's um, son's birthday party the other day and someone was talking about being a financial advisor and he's like, I charge a 1% fee. And like, that doesn't sound too bad, right? Because your average American just has a terrible understanding of numbers and percentages. And you can be a very smart person, but well, 1% doesn't sound very big. But then if you're like, okay, if I give you a hundred dollar bill, but then I'm only ever going to give you back like $99. Like it starts to sound really terrible. Like I feel like if you break it down or flip it, or, you know, if you give me a hundred dollar bills and I'm going to, you know, take one every time you hand me a hundred bucks, like that kind of sucks. And, and so I think it's all in that number fee. percentage. Yeah. That's an annual fee. So it's, they take, a, they take one buck this year and next year, next year, next year. Yep. So after, after 40 years, it's 40 bucks of the hundred, but it's even worse than that because that, that the rest of it's growing. And so they're taking a bigger, they're taking a dollar fifty than two, two X. And so it just turns out that the math of that means that your, your, your money is about cut in half. A 1% yeah. fee over 40 years won't cut the money in half, but a 2% fee about cuts the money in half. So yeah, but it's still terrible. And I, I literally sat there no, and agree. finally couldn't take it anymore. And I'm like, you're losing years, years of your retirement and fees. And then I'm like, I'm uninvited from this birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, and i mean he was a financial advisor from like some big company and um i mean it was just the most ridiculous thing because he's just sitting there for like 20 minutes just saying all these ridiculous terms like you're like all the ratios and just yeah. going over like expense ratios and like eat of like like just like rattling off all these ratios and confusing people and then saying like well i can help you it's you know it's i know it's confusing and it's all this appeal to emotions and i'm like sitting yeah. there freaking out um and yeah, i mean it's, like, it's tough to be a financial advisor like i yeah. you know i sympathize with him because i like helping people with money and investing and so you know right. if i needed a job right now i could see being attracted to that field then you're presented with this inherent conflict of interest which is you're trying to maximize your company's profits while you're helping the person build wealth and that is like that's at odds and like i said you know it doesn't getting paid for your work doesn't make you a bad person. But right. I think the conflict of interest just makes the industry tough because I think a lot of them prioritize their own profits and some don't and kind of knowing which one is which is really difficult. You know, if, if, if you weren't you sitting in that dinner party you were at or whatever, and the person's like, this guy really knows his stuff. He's like, yeah. seems like a gung-ho. Whereas you're like, no, he's literally making it more complicated than it needs to be just to make a sale. Whereas yeah. the, the like, more altruistic one is going to try to simplify it and then say, Hey, you can do this on your own, but right. if you don't, this is the value I would provide, you know? 
Right. And he was, and he was a very smart guy. And the hard part is I think a lot of advisors like really just enjoy it. And so he's like, I like, like this fun. He's rattling off like GF, like all, like all the ticker symbols that everyone can like look up on their iPhones while we're all sitting around and he loves it. And he's telling about like how much like tech industry is in this particular fund. And he really likes that. I'm like, that's all great. And this poor guy is so well-researched, but your expense ratio is a point two. And he's like, yeah, that's pretty low. I'm like, is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the, the other problem is no matter how smart he is, he's competing against the sum total of all human knowledge, right? And right. so that's like, that's like the very like tough pill to swallow of index funds. And so I guess for your listeners, if you don't know what an index fund is, it's basically just buying the entire stock market all at once in proportion to the size of the company. So if there's, you know, 4,000 publicly traded companies in the U.S. or so, the financial advisor you, you were just describing is what's called the actively managed or actively yep. active manager, where, where he tries to look at those 4,000, buy some good ones, don't buy some bad ones, trade, you know, and buy tech sector, don't buy energy, yep. buy healthcare, don't buy transportation, whatever. And so he's making those decisions because he's a well-researched, smart guy. And I don't doubt that he's a well-researched, smart guy, but being well-researched and smart isn't good enough to beat the market because right. he's not just trying to make money. He's trying to beat everyone else who's also a well-researched, well smart guy. Right. And, and it's his, literally his day job is to research and have smart answers to these questions. I'm like, I don't think it would right. take a lot to have these like decently intelligent answers. And it's... Right. And so he's like, he's fighting this battle with all these other smart people in this very efficient marketplace. And, you know, it's like, let's say the market makes 10% a year and he might make 9% that year. Well, that's not good. That's bad because he lost the market by 1%, right? Because some other slightly smarter manager made 11%. And mm -hmm. so there's like this little teeter-totter around the index fund. But the problem is the smart manager made 11%, slightly less smart manager made 9%, but they both charged 1% for their services, right? So they really made 10% and 8%. So like yeah. the range of active managers is between 8 and 10, whereas you can guarantee yourself 10 by just buying the index fund, which gives you the full growth of the entire market, guarantees you the full growth of the entire market with no fees, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's like the, you know, and study after study after study after study shows that the fees involved in your investments are the only thing that correlate to improved future growth, right? right? Like, it's not how smart your investor is, it's your fees that eat away at your returns. Because it's literally like, okay, if you're making a 10% rate of return, but then you have 3% in fees, well, you're not getting a 10% rate of return. Yeah. You just lost another 3%. And it's right. now it's seven minus inflation, which is another two to three. Now it's four. And now you're like, okay, now, it's and now you're sad. <laughs> yeah. Not enough growth to retire when you want to retire. Right. And then he was saying too, I'm like, so my portfolio is like back to zero. Like I'm super excited to see that I'm like at a 0% for the year. That's very exciting. Um, but I'm just in a total stock market index fund. And he tried to say, you know, well, I'm up 8% this year. And I mean, Everyone, it's it's like it's like how big was the fish you caught this weekend? Ever, er, everyone, everyone, everyone's up if you just don't count all the st all the times you lost, right? And right. I just every time I hit it, I was like, have you done like a very careful audit of every single investment you've made, including the losers, including like the over the, the last ten years over time? Because like you know, you say you're up, and if even if you are, which maybe, but more mm -hmm. likely due to luck than skill, doesn't mean you will be in the future. In fact, very certainly, very likely you won't be, right? So mm -hmm. you know, every time I hear someone say that up, it's like, yeah, you know, and I usually ask some probing questions. It's like, have you ever had a stock that went down? And they're like, oh, well, yeah. I was like, did you, 
include that and you're being up like, well, no, I just don't count that. I was like, yeah, no kidding. You yeah. can't not count that because I put that money in index fund, which is up 10% because I don't, none of mine goes out, go out, goes out of business because I own everything. You know? Right. Yep. And I think the other thing, you know, when you're working with an advisor, they're picking funds and they're picking companies. And I've, you know, I've watched my own family work with advisors that have picked some losers over the years and companies that go out of business, especially like in 2008. And if your company that you singly invested in is no longer there, you're not going to get your money back. And that's where index funds really give you the diversification that I don't think a lot of people realize it's a lot safer than picking individual funds. Even if you have the world's best financial advisor, they're at some point going to pick losers where you have a lot yeah. more, you've opened yourself up to a lot more risk. And I think that's something people don't understand about index funds is how they're self-cleansing. I don't know if you want to sure, let yeah, you I do mean, the, all the diving. <laughs> so I, I think when people are fearful about getting into investing, they say they don't want to lose all their money, which I understand. But an index fund is basically owning all the stocks. And so like, let's, let's look at the S&P 500. That stands for the Standard & Poor's 500. It's this company called Standard & Poor's back when old-timey companies used to name themselves after people's last names or whatever. Mm -hmm. And back when this was like a novel thing to do, they kept track of the 500 biggest companies in the US. They just kept track of, you know, this was pre-computer, so they had to like go and like, you know, make phone calls or take a train or whatever they were doing back then and like write down their ledger and they're like, okay, uh, you know, the, um, the, the American Steel Com Corporation has made a million dollars this year. And then they write it all down in a big list and they keep track of the 500 biggest companies. And that list persists until today. And so we talk about that a lot because it's this long-term um, index list that we can use to compare growth of an economy. And so when you said self-cleansing, what happens is as the economy is growing, all 500 of these companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But maybe it just so happens that one month, the 501st company was growing faster than the 500th company. And so what happens is those two on the, you know, the one that's just outside of the list and the one that's just inside the list swap. And then the one inside the list is no longer on the list. And the one that was not on the list now is. And so if you, if you only own the 500, you know, the S&P 500 index fund, it's impossible to own any company that goes out of business because it doesn't go out of business. It just falls off the list. You sell that, you know, you don't, the index fund automatically sells those shares in that company and buys the shares in the company that's the new up and coming company. It doesn't mean you're like buying losing companies. It just means all 500 are growing. And then there's just natural like growth being growing faster or slower at the bottom list. And so you kind of always have this nice like churning list of the biggest companies. Um, and the other thing about losing all your money is your index fund cannot go to zero. If, if your index fund goes to zero, then what has happened is a total and complete economic apocalypse in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, if your index fund goes to zero, the cash that you buried in your backyard is of no value because there are right. no companies to accept your cash. The money in your savings account is worthless because banks don't exist because there are no companies. You know, like if the index fund goes to zero, no, no, no economic anything exists. And we're literally, we're either all dead or it's like a shotgun shell and canned good barter, bartering system yes. because it's like Mad Max style. And if you have like a gallon yeah. of gas or something, you know, and, and so, so I'm not, I don't know if that's going to happen. Like I'm not a prepper. I don't, you know, I don't know mm -hmm. the likelihood of, of yeah. being in that scenario. But what I do know is you're no better off having your money in a checking account than you are in an index fund if your index fund goes to zero. And so right. if you want to diversify 
for the Mad Max scenario, you should literally be like buying canned goods and stuff. But if you want- It's the to- only time the people, the cra- in my mind, sorry, I'm going to offend yeah. people I'm sure on here that are like the bomb shelter people. It's the only time the bomb shelter people with all their like guns and ammo on one side and canned goods on the other are like on top of the world as if there's a whole market collapse. And, right. yeah. you know, we're all- our dollars in our backyard are worth nothing, but I have some chicken, so I'm good, is really yeah. the scenario that you'll yeah. be in. So we go like, through the self-sustaining farms yeah. would be, you know, yeah. the ideal way yeah. to go. Yeah, like, yeah, if you have like a water source and a farm, then you're probably, and, and probably <laughs> some guns too, because people are going to be coming for your yeah. food at that point. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, so, but like, you know, this is not a prepper podcast, so I don't know right. if it's going to happen. I think, <laughs> right. you know, my, my guess is the most likely scenario is that like, Right. The world seems to be getting, you know, there's bad news all the time, of course. But like, if you look at long right. trends, the world is getting safer every year. There's less famine every year. There's less war every year. It seems like the long-term trend continues. We're probably not going to have the doomsday scenario. And, right. you know, maybe buy some canned goods, whatever. I'm not a gun guy. Maybe you should buy, I don't know, like a bow and arrow or something. But there you go. Uh, <laughs> but, but it, you know, yeah, something. <laughs> also, you should be investing for your future because in the right. scenario that the more right. likely scenario where we're, we still have money in 40 years, you're going to yeah. want some. Right. And so if you're not going to have a bomb shelter, then you need to be investing because truly the money in the backyard is not going to be the thing that yeah. saves you. And so in order to get the returns, you need to really grow and be competitive and not lose money. Investing is the way to go and learning to not be fearful because it's really, you're just like believing in American business. You're believing the top 500 companies and business in America will continue to flourish for the next 30 to 40 years, which I feel like is a pretty solid bet that people, people are competitive just in general. And we're a very, you know, we're, you know, this type of society for a reason. And so I think it's a pretty safe bet going forward, pending any, you know, crazy emergencies. And so that's really kind of the ideal way to put your money into something as you work this W-2 job. It's ridiculous to work so many years and never save. Like you've literally spent your entire life working. And so saving is going to be really important for your future self. So, um, oh, and you had a really interesting post I was going to say too. So um, on the index fund bubble story that keeps going around on the internet. So people are like afraid right now of index funds because they're worried that there's some kind of like index fund bubble, like there was a real estate bubble. And I just find this personally the craziest thing I've ever heard. I don't know if you've, you know, taken a deep dive into that topic at all, but. Yeah, I have. And so, you know, first of all. <laughs> Side eye. <laughs> I'm, I'm, so, I'm so annoyed. Yeah, I'm like rolling my eyes. Not at you, I'm rolling out my ideas. Like I saw one of your posts on it. I'm like, oh, we should totally hit this because I yeah. keep seeing this stupid thing pop up and it's yeah. driving me nuts. So. <laughs> so like, I, it's just this, it's just this like very short term fear mongering mentality. So like I had the other day I posted, um, what did I I post something about index funds and Mm -hmm. and some guy, some guy responded is like, you know, stocks are the most over, you know, stocks in January were the most overvalued they've been since the eighties and they're back to being the most overvalued. So it's not worth taking a minus 50% crash to get a plus 2%. So first of all, I looked at that guy's profile and it was just like conspiracy theories all the way down. It was just like, it was, yeah. like, it was just the craziest nonsense I've ever seen. So first of all, don't trust that guy. And right. second of all, I was like, are you crazy? I would love to buy stock in the 80s. Like if you could buy stock in the 80s, it was like like two pennies for a dollar now. It's, it's like up right. 20x from the 80s. That was overvalued. What are you talking about? Like, yeah, there's been some volatility. Like there was a horrific crash in 1987 where the market dropped like 22% in one day and there was right. a horrific crash in 2020 where the market dropped 30% when coronavirus was discovered. Guess what? 
they both recovered and it's going to keep going up. And so yep. this bubble that they're talking about is like, it's like this fear of the past. And so same for the real estate, but everyone's like, that was horrific. That was a terrible thing. I was like, but I would, I would kill to go buy real estate today at 2007 prices because mm -hmm. guess what? Guess what? In 2020, the market has fully recovered and then some. And so if you're not trying to like day trade real estate or day trade <laughs> index right. funds over the next few months, then you're going to be fine. Right. So the people like, in it for the long game, like the set it and forget it, that, you know, yeah. you don't really have to worry about that it's, because it's, it's the value of American businesses and they go up, inflation goes up, you know, everything trends upward over time. And so you totally. know, I believe that Amazon's going to kill it into the future. So, you know, like look at the companies you're investing in and consider, you know, what is, what is in the S&P 500 and kind of watching that because yeah, people, it just doesn't make any right. sense. Those Everything's popular, overvalued right? because I mean, these companies are turning a profit and they publish all their data on how they're turning a profit. And yeah, I just, I find that the most yeah. ridiculous concepts. So I thought we'd hit that because right. it's so funny. Like, <laughs> even, even if it is a, even if it is a bubble, like it was in 2007 and like it was in the eighties, apparently you still would want to buy because it still will go up over long periods of time. Right. Like we've that's recovered. <laughs> right. We've recovered. So that's the first thing. Number two is you can't know when these bubbles are because like you were just describing, the price is baked in with the sum total of human knowledge. Everyone can see these earnings reports. Everyone can see the pro their profitability. Everyone can see their dividend payments. And so it's, it's not like every single idiot on the planet is paying way too much money. You know, it, and if it is overvalued compared to the, to the dividends or whatever, it's just because we expect Amazon to do even better in the future. So that's why that's priced in. Um, and then regarding, regarding the actual like theory behind this index fund bubble, it's just like when you re like Michael Burry, the guy who did the big short, mm -hmm. he like wrote this thing, like his arguments are just pretty weak. He's just saying, you know, we've been talking a lot of, about, a lot about the S and P 500. So he said, if everyone buys the S and P 500, then no one's buying small companies. And those, so therefore like the large companies will be overvalued compared to the small companies, like kind of, except for as soon as there's a, um, like inefficiency in the market like that, where there are some that are too much and some that are too little, smart people on Wall Street go and sell the, the sell the expensive one and buy the cheap one. And so it basically self-corrects instantly. Plus, I don't even recommend buying the S&P 500. I recommend buying the total stock market index fund. So right. you are buying all the small stocks too. And so it's like, mm -hmm. so if there's an index fund bubble, there's like a total economy bubble. Right. And even if that's true, you still want to invest because you're still going to like own the profits <laughs> of all these companies over the next decades, right? So it's just, it just is nothing that a normal investor would need to worry about. And the problem is like these very cryptic arguments that Michael Burry is making are like being used to fear monger to a normal person who is just trying to save like a few hundred bucks a month or something and just right. like patently ignoring that nonsense because it's like at best an academic nuance and at worst just totally made up BS because you know mutual fund managers want to sell you actively traded nonsense at a higher fee. Right. Exactly. Um, and then, so for your average person, you know, we talk a lot about index funds specifically. So obviously low fees, um, we talked about them being self-cleansing, trying to think there's always other benefits I talk about and I'm spacing. So they're, uh, yeah, they're simple. You don't need to really mm -hmm. make any choices. They have, right. they're very tax efficient, which means they have very low turnover. So if you go with one of those actively traded financial advisors who is trading stocks through all the time, Inside of a Roth IRA, it doesn't matter because that is a tax protected account. But if you have more money outside of a Roth IRA, you're getting taxed on all those trades every year. And so index funds will make you more, even if he 
performs the same as an index fund, which mm -hmm. isn't likely given his fees. Right. You're gonna, you know, even if he, so if he performs the same as an index fund, then he hasn't done anything for you, which is bad. Then he charges a fee, which is bad. And then all those trades he did just to get to the zero mark of the index fund are gonna uh, incur additional taxes. So an index fund is like this super tax efficient way to invest for long terms because you basically own all the same stocks. So there's no trades happening. Mm -hmm. And for people that are even overwhelmed by like the idea of tax efficiency and self-cleansing, just the moral of the story is index funds are very good. And it's pretty easy, I think, to spot them in your retirement portfolios. If you say, go into your 401k and start looking, um, I literally turn to the expense ratios section. Like, so somewhere hidden in all of your investment options are things called expense ratios. And I find that's the easiest way to kind of see what you're looking for is that how you usually recommend people look at it or, i mean some literally say index fund so that's probably the yeah. the easiest way first but you can see them by expense ratio also yeah i have a few posts on this one like how to analyze a mutual fund and an index fund is a type of mutual fund that just owns all the stocks at a very low fee um, right. another one how to choose your 401k investments um, and you're exactly right you know unfortunately we live in a complex world and so there isn't just like a big green for index and a big red for naughty or whatever right and so you have to like kind of do a little bit of homework you know sometimes they'll say index sometimes they'll say like idx because they're abbreviated sometimes they say ix and then for sure the expense ratio so the expense ratio is the percent of the assets invested that they take every year for their own fees and so again, if the expense ratio is 2% and you invest uh, $10,000, they're going to take 200 bucks. But if the index fund, if the expense ratio is 0.1%, they're going to take 10 bucks. That's a 20 times different, you know, and 2% and 0.1% both sound like small numbers compared to like 100%, but it's 20 times less. And so for sure in your 401k, in your typical 401k list of investments, almost always it's going to show the past performance. And I say, just ignore that. Totally ignore it yep. because all it's going to do is trick you into making a bad decision right. because it'll be like, like Ooh, and I think like, that's the first thing that people want to look at is, oh, how will it perform? What are my returns? And it's like, right. don't look at that. You don't right. even need to look at that. It's actually a and more simple formula. Right. Because they, yeah. they, they say, oh, like I'll do what did the, I'll buy the best thing. But if you're buying the thing that went up the most in the last year, then you're basically paying a lot of money for the thing that's went up a lot, not buying something cheap that's about to go up. And so what you don't really, you know, what you, what you really don't want to know is what did well the last five years. It's what's, what's going to do well the next 20 or 30 years. Right. And it's impossible to know that which sector or which thing, you know. And so the, the past performance thing, like, it's kind of like if you look at this and you say, like, ooh, Indonesian uh, <laughs> silver futures did really well in 2019. <laughs> like, I'll buy them for 2020. And then right. you buy them in the Indonesian silver futures tank like well yeah because you bought this really weird thing that's had a really mm -hmm. weird thing happen last year so you since you can't know what's going to do well in the future because everyone knows the same things and all these things are officially priced you just buy everything and you guarantee yourself the full share of market growth so yeah when you're looking at that 401k investment you look for the word index you look for the low expense ratio and i say in a 401k unfortunately there's more fees baked into a 401k but i'd say Anything over 0.5 is bad. Anything mm -hmm. over 0.2 is like okay. And then anything like under 0.2 is very good. And if it's under 0.1, it's like fantastic. And so if you're seeing like 0 0.0 something or 0.1 in a 401k, that's like a fantastic expense ratio because 401ks right. necessarily have fees because your company that you work for doesn't 
manage that whole website and all that stuff that has to happen to make your foreign account happen. They pay someone to do it. And that person puts their fees baked into those expense ratios. Right. And so, yeah, so that's what, so I guess first look at the names. There's two columns you need to worry about if you're ever looking at it. You need to look at names and see anything that looks like index fund and then your expense ratios column. And I think in most of the ones I've looked at, um, it's like 0. 0.0 something is going to be your index funds. And so I literally circle or highlight anything with those low expense ratios and kind of choose from there. And you can usually get a big list down to like three or four options, depending on your employer. Some employers have tons of choices. Yeah. But like your average company, they usually give you a little list or a little brochure with them. Yeah, and like a dozen or two dozen yeah. at most. Yeah. I think mine has you, 30. So, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it sounds like you work for a good company. I mean, there are some companies that only offer high fee ones. And right. That's unfortunate. And so, you know, when you're looking at which accounts to put your investments into, um, you can always put a limited amount of money into a regular brokerage account. So you could go to Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab or Betterment and open a regular brokerage account. But there are these, and then you can put a limited amount of money in there and it grows and you buy index funds and you're, you're taxed on the gains. And so if you put $10,000 and it grows to $12,000, the government will say, hey, you made $2,000. We want a piece of that. But if the government has also said, we don't want a bunch of broke old people to live in the world. So we're going to encourage you to invest by giving you these special tax break accounts. And so they're like big buckets. You can put your money in. If it's a regular brokerage account, that's great because it grows in the investments. But if it's in a 401k or a Roth IRA, the government keeps their hands off those in slightly different ways. And so basically you get a good tax deal. And so I always say, do, a, do your 401k first up to your company match. And so if your company is offering uh, a match, say like 2% of your salary or something, you put 2% of your salary, they'll put 2% of your salary. And on top of that, that's free money as a hundred percent instant return. You can't beat that regardless of any fees. So you always do that first. Then second, I go to a Roth IRA, which is an individual account. It stands for individual retirement account. And um, you can buy the same exact index funds in there. It can be the same index funds in all your different accounts. It doesn't matter. Um, and then because, Roth IRAs generally have much lower fees and they're not tied to your company. So you don't have to worry about your company messing with it or whatever. After your Roth IRA and your Roth IRA, you can put in $6,000 per year for 2020. If you have more money after that to invest, then I say, go back to your 401k. Your 401k can put up to 19,500 total. And that does not include the match. So if you put in 19,500 and your company puts in 3,000, you actually have 22,500, for example. And then if that's exhausted, generally for most people, then you go to a regular brokerage account, which is the regular account without the tax benefit. That's really helpful. It's always helpful to know because you have like your buckets and then you have stuff in the bucket. And so to do, to know the order in which you like plan out your little buckets is important. And then really like your index funds and your funds are what you put in them. So I've had people say like, oh, well, I have an IRA. I'm like, okay, but what is it invested in? Like, what are you doing in, in your bucket? Like, is it empty? Like what, like you, it has to be, your money just doesn't go into the bucket and magic happens. Like you have to invest it in something and your employer usually default chooses like some really terrible high fee options. Um, you usually are put into like a really basic like target day fund and it just sits there and you probably have like a, I don't know, a one to 2% fee or so. Like the target date funds tend to be terrible most of the time. And so people tend to forget that just doing the bucket itself isn't enough. You need to look at what's going on inside there also. <laughs> yeah. 
I agree. I, yeah, that's probably like the number. I have like my seven sins of investing and my, my number one sin is holding cash inside of, of a retirement account. Yeah. Because, and it's like, it, it like I, I'm, I'm like mad at the big old brokerages who like haven't taken an aggressive stance in this. Like with Betterment, one of the new robo-advisors, like if you put your money in Betterment, they basically do take care of it. You don't have to do anything else. But if you put your money into Vanguard, They'll just let cash sit there in a Roth IRA for decades if you don't take the necessary next step of actually clicking buy on an index fund, right? And so that those two layers of like indirection can confuse people because like yeah. one thing is the bucket, one thing is the stuff in the bucket, and people just thought if you put money in the Roth IRA, it, it's an investment. You're done. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So if you if you like log into your brokerage account where your Roth IRA is or your 401k and you see anything that says cash or default or core position or sweep account, all those words are just synonyms for you have money there sitting there doing nothing. And mm -hmm. so you want, you basically inside, you know, if you're under the age of like 70, basically, you, you generally don't want any cash inside of your IRA or 401k because the point of those accounts is to be invested and grow so that you get the tax break on the growth, right? If you don't need the tax break, then you can keep your cash in a savings account or you can keep it in a bucket in your backyard. I don't care <laughs> if, it's, if it's in your retirement accounts, it's supposed to be invested so you can you, right. you use them for the intended purpose of giving you the tax break on the growth. So yeah, mm -hmm. go take a look at those So if counts. you're listening to this and you've never logged into your employer 401k that you're putting like your 4% in or whatever to get your match, go look at what it's put in because you're doing a great job of investing like step one, but you need to look at like you put stuff in the bucket, but you haven't like given it a home yet. So figuring out what to do with the money in there is important. And I think people don't Can I realize get one that. Pitch on that. Yeah. That's true. So you also mentioned targeted index funds or target date funds yes. are terrible. That's mostly true, but there's this yes. big distinction between target date funds with high fees and target date index funds with low fees. So Which I've learned date. from you that these exist okay. because all of my exposure to these target date funds in like my employer accounts have always just been terrible with these high fees. And then Jeremy showed me that there are target date index funds now, which is like a unicorn, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I, I learned this too many years ago. And when I was helping a friend back when I knew very little and she knew even less and she's like, what do I invest in? And I said, well, if you don't want to do any of the work of figuring out which funds you want, just go buy a target date fund. And then as I learned more, I actually felt bad because I, I basically recommended her this one with like higher fees. And it wasn't terrible, you know, still invest. It wasn't, it wasn't. Right. Like, I didn't you're still doing but, better. I guess if you're, if you're analysis paralysis, like it's not the worst thing. It's just, you right. could be doing better. <laughs> it's better than nothing, but it's not optimal. It's say. better than just sitting there cash in your backyard. So definitely. definitely. <laughs> so a target date fund is basically a very diverse set of mutual funds in one specific package that is designed around people of a certain age and they're named after the year, year of your target retirement date. And so I always say, take your birth year. I was born in 1980, mm -hmm. add 65, I get 2045. So that's 25 years from now. So my target retirement date or my target year would be 2045. And for all you five people, you work optional people, I base that year on my birth year, not based on when I retire. The reason is I want money until I die not until I retire at 40 or whatever. And so, you know, you want, even though if you're gonna be retired for 40 years, you still wanna be aggressive because you still have a 40 or 50 or 60 year time frame of investing. So 
So yeah, it's I really like, like targeted that. I've never heard anyone talk about it and how it works with Phi, like specifically kind of going into that where you do your birth year. Because like for me, we're like the money that I'll use for income for the next, you know, 30 years or plus is going to be real estate. And so I want the, when I die, I have money for my ancestors fund. So that would make sense for me if you, if I'm going to do the target date index fund or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so. in that scenario, you might even push it later. You know, I guess, yeah. I think the one critique of target date index funds is that they're too conservative, meaning mm -hmm. that they transition right. to bonds too soon. Mm -hmm. And so the way that you can adjust for that is just pick a later date. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so if your target date is 2045, like mine, I actually use a 2050 fund just because Maybe 70 yeah. is a better retirement year, or I want to have that fee be a little, or have those funds be a little bit more aggressive. And so, yeah, just to finish what a target date fund is, it's, yes. it's a combination of funds that has U.S. stocks, international stocks, and bonds. And as you age, as you approach that year it's named after, it basically transitions from mostly stocks to about 50-50 stocks and bonds in retirement to about you know 80-20 bonds and stocks um, like 20 years after retirement. And so the idea is you can literally pick this one fund for the remainder of your natural life and do nothing else. The problem with target date funds is that there's some guys wearing suits in Manhattan, Chicago, like doing a bunch of nonsense inside of there and charging you high fees. And so enter the target date index fund, which has all those benefits of the nice diversification of US international and bonds, a nice reallocation towards bonds as you age, but instead of like a one or two percent high fee with guys wearing with guys wearing suits and maybe girls wearing suits too, I don't know. But yeah, but very low fee, and so there's no people of any race or gender managing your fund. They're just computers who just automatically buy all the stocks for you and automatically rebalance and reallocate as you age. And so, you know, I actually am. The more I learn about equity investing, the more I value the real positive financial benefit of simplicity. And mm -hmm. I think that any sort of complexity you add to your, into your investing is so much more likely to hurt you than help you that you should eliminate it away. And so that's why I love target date index funds because they are, they're ultimately simple. It's just like you put it all in one thing, Set, set up automated investments and then do nothing else for the rest of your life. And it's so simple. It's basically this like fortress that's impossible for the little helper people who are trying to, you know, <laughs> get in there and charge you money to mess with your right. investments to break. It's like, it's yeah. so good. It's optimal. So I forget. So that's, that's how I love to invest. So in same thing with, I feel like real life, people don't like fees. They don't like expenses. They don't like costs. And so when you hear like expense ratio, you can think, bad you can you know these you know target date funds with high expenses it's no one likes expenses no one likes fees and i think it's pretty easy to get the big concepts is fees are bad and they will steal your money over the long term and i think that's kind of it doesn't need to be that hard and i think it's ridiculous in the finance industry also that so many of us based on emotion like what's your risk tolerance like you know how are like you feeling about your investments and it's yeah. really you know, how much fees do you want to have? And then obviously deciding your stock and bond mix is still somewhat important, but I think so many advisors kind of make their living on how people feel about their investments really more than, you know, what are your goals? Like, what do you want your retirement to look like? How much, you know, when do you want to retire and how much a nesting do you think you'll need? 
I feel like it's so much more important in your lifestyle. Like, do you want to vacation a lot or are you good with being pretty chill? Are you a homebody? Do you not go out or do you want to, you know, travel the world in your retirement? It's very different amounts of money that live yeah. that lifestyle. And thing is, so I think it's so much less about the traditional things you hear with investors kind of talking yeah. is I've heard that risk tolerance line being used <sighs> as like a segue to selling a really crappy insurance product. And so like some like very new <laughs> investor will come in and say, what's your risk tolerance? And someone's like, well, I don't want to lose all my money. And, the, and, and then what the financial advisor should do is begin to educate and say, Hey, you can't lose all your money in an index fund unless, you know, we've already talked about the doomsday scenario, but, but instead what they say is, Oh, I get a huge kickback if I sell an insurance product. And so they'll sell an annuity or a whole life insurance or indexed universal life insurance. And these are all these very high fee insurance products that give a huge kickback to the financial advisor. And then the financial advisor, like on one side of their mouth, they're like, thanks for the kickback. On the other side of the mouth, they're telling the investor, this is going to protect your money and it's going to, you know, build a cash value over time. And it's like, I just, I just hate this stuff because it's just like so clearly worse for the investor, but the people selling it use this complicated language yep. and are very misleading about how they sell it. And then people come to me and say, is index universal life better than an index fund? I'm like, no, because it's getting its value from the same place, except half of the value is draining away to the insurance company and this, and this insurance person yeah. that just sold it to you. So um, yeah, don't buy Universal it. or whole should also make you run for the hills more than the word fee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that is one thing. Dave Ramsey's not great on like investing, but he does a really good job explaining the benefits of whole versus term life and that term yeah, life is better. Just a phenomenal job with that. And I really like his like very simple again, like how you said you like to keep it simple. Don't mess mix your investing with your insurance. Yeah. Insurance is like your seatbelt and investing is like the car. Like you don't need to blend the two together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just... I agree. yeah. I'm also like with Dave on getting out of debt. Like I don't know of a better way to get out of debt. And I, and you know, listen to him clearly that's personal for him because he like went broke and American express like yelled at him or whatever. And right. like, you know, I feel like he as a person has decided not to use the get out of debt portion of his business to like uh, become wealthy off people. But I think he does use the investing portion. And so like, yeah. you know, uh, it's a free marketplace and people can choose to follow and listen to who they want to. And so like, yeah, I think he's obviously like a pretty well-read guy and has been doing this for a long time and knows a whole bunch of stuff. But, and so like, yeah, I agree that I think he, I think he's got it right about whole life insurance. I think he's got it right about getting out of debt. I think he's wrong on investing. Yeah. And occasionally I, I don't listen to him a ton anymore because I'm so far, like we're doing so many different things now, but I listened yeah. to about a month or so ago and I heard him say, mutual fund or index fund. And I was very pleasantly surprised. So there might be a little hope. No, I agree. I actually think he, camp. he keeps dropping the index fund word and I'm a little proud now. So yeah, I think, I mean, it's kind of like he knows he's on the, he must know he's on the wrong side of history. Right. And, um, I mean, historically yeah. index funds have not existed forever. And so That's maybe true. back when Dave Ramsey started, there was no such thing. And he kind of built his business model around mutual funds, but and he's yeah. like, there's one path he uses and, and mutual funds kind of yeah. needs to change. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And maybe he will, you know, I think, I think generally he's a pretty moral guy. So I don't right. think that he's like, if, if like really he really thinks he's hurting people, he wouldn't do it or, or whatever. But right. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, you know, when I was 14 and I opened my Roth IRA for the first time, like thanks to my, my dad, like we bought mutual funds that had 
feed associated and, and, yeah. and they're actively managed. And that was like, and it made perfect sense because the alternative was buying and trading stocks on right. our own. And we're like, well, we don't have time to be reading the prospectuses of <laughs> 30 different right. companies to decide which one to buy or whatever. Um, and, but now that we've had mutual funds for several decades, we're like, wait a minute, all these mutual funds are just averaging worse than the market after their fees. And it's impossible to tell in advance which one will be the market. So just buy the market. Right. And I think um, one thing I think is kind of interesting. So talking about, so you rec you typically like the total stock market index fund because then you're just kind of buying the whole thing. Um, do you ever worry about international at all? Because I know that's a thing that Dave always talks about that people can't let go either is saying you need to get some influence outside of the United States and I'm really not convinced and I want to see what you think. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, on this one, I think there's like very smart altruistic people who come down on both sides. Um, you know, I like having international. So if I were to buy three things, I would buy a U.S. stock, total stock market index fund, a non-U.S. total market index fund that's like international and a bond index fund that's like called the three fund portfolio. Yep. And you can buy all those in one single package inside the target date index fund. But the reason I like international is because I don't want to have my entire financial future tied to the economy and currency of a single country, even if it's the biggest country in the world. And, um, you know, if you look at international versus U.S. performance over the last 50 years, there's usually like three to seven to 10 year ranges where one outperforms the other. And mm -hmm. we've just gone through like a 10 year period where U.S. has outperformed international because starting 10 years ago, the US market was crushed by the financial crisis. And so when you look at a 10 year window, it was very, very low. And then it basically went straight up for 10 years. Right. And during that 10 years, there was like the, the Greek financial crisis and the, the right. Brexit thing was causing some trouble. And like, yeah. you know, uh, Venezuela had their currency, you know, so there's, there's like bad things happening in other countries that caused international to underperform. Mm -hmm. But ask yourself for the next 10 years, is it gonna be a mirror of the last 10 years or is something that one of our recent presidents has done right. is gonna, you know, without making this political, gonna eventually take hold and cause a big problem? Or is there gonna be something just nobody saw coming like coronavirus that is right. a big problem, you know? Um, and so I like diversity more. Um, since mm -hmm. they go back and forth, which one outperforms, I like to own both. I don't like that to be tied. But the argument on the other side is over the last 100 years, the U.S. is the bastion of capitalism and has has been the like fastest growing market in the, in the world. And U.S. companies are so big and we have such a global economy that if you own the S&P 500, for example, like a third of that business they're doing is with is outside of the U.S. anyway. And so just owning the U.S. fund already is necessarily diversified with the rest of the world. So, yeah. It just depends how much like international exposure you want to have because yeah, because people definitely argue. Yeah. That's the main thing I always hear is, you know, companies have so much of their, you know, organizations based around the world that you are somewhat diversified, but again, it's definitely not as secure as if you truly own like an international fund. So it's kind of, you know, figuring yeah. out your risk tolerance. If you want like a two fund portfolio or a three fund or there's a million different options out there. I, I have a link in my like link tree in my bio on Instagram. That's like, the white coat investor has like 150 portfolios that are better than yours where he just shares what other people's investment <laughs> portfolios are. And, you know, you can just do your total stock market and it's fun. They have a three fund portfolio. There's just a bunch of different options. And so that's yeah. kind of fun to look at and see what other people are doing. So.
Yeah. So the, as a market, as market cap, the U.S. or the U.S. makes about half of mm -hmm. the world's market cap. And so if you wanted to buy an equal share in every company in the world, you would have about 50% non-U.S. stocks. I, and I, even Vanguard, which is like pretty pro-international, they even recommend a U.S. tilt. So they recommend like 55, 45 or something like that. I think most people prefer like 25 or less of international. It doesn't matter. But, but also with, if you're getting confused, like, oh no, which of those 150 is the best? It doesn't really matter that much. They're right. all very good. They're all kind of doing the exact same right. thing is taking advantage of the market and you can't know which one is best so just remember the two rules live below your means invest early and often spend less than you make invest the difference yep. that's how you build wealth and if you just pick keep any your of those investing ones, simple yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah keep it simple just buy a targeted in index fund set up an auto contribution you'll be wealthy and, and not worry about it. Perfect. I had a really good question I'll let you answer to um, that I got this week that I thought would be fun to talk about because um, somebody said, you know, they're trying to decide, they want to open an IRA. So just an individual retirement account because they have some extra money they want to invest. And um, they are looking at what company to open it up with. And they are like, everyone on the internet talks about Vanguard. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit. And they're like, but I've been looking at say like Fidelity, for example, who's offering really nice products right now with such low fees. And he's like, I have the lowest expense ratio with Fidelity with a total stock market index fund, but everybody else just talks about Vanguard's um, and kind of wondered why. And so we kind of hit on it already, but I just wanted to answer yeah. this guy's question while we, That's I That's a good you. question. And I think I'm probably guilty of this too. And the reason why is because Vanguard invented the index fund. Yep. They're funded by Jack Bogle. And they have this very weird business structure where the business is owned by the funds. And so when you invest in a Vanguard fund, you own part of the Vanguard business, which, and, and to be totally fair, I don't fully understand like the economics behind this. Right. But it, as a marketing technique, at least, they say that they have no outside incentive to increase expenses for exterior owners. And so with like Schwab, for example, if they want to crank up uh, expense ratios on their index funds to like make Mr. Schwab, I don't know who owns Schwab, but you know, make the <laughs> yeah. more wealthy, they could do that. Whereas Vanguard says that inherent conflict of interest doesn't exist with their business model. And so, you know, I'm, I, I maybe, I don't really buy that because I think that Vanguard, or I think Fidelity and Schwab and all the others know that they're competing with Vanguard. And so right. like, they actually have slightly lower expense ratios than Vanguard because they just do because they can compete. But the reason I talk about Vanguard is because I basically do think they mostly only have index funds. So you can't really go wrong with Vanguard. And there's no like, you know, sleazy sales pitch or anything that comes along right. with it. So, I think like if someone's recommending Vanguard to you, that's someone who's like kind of giving you an altruistic, no strings attached kind of recommendation. That said, 95% of my money is with Fidelity because yeah. I think their website's better. I think their app's better. And I like that they have a checking account and I can use their debit card and I can go around the world with no ATM fees. And, um, you know, that's just what I've chosen. But if you're brand new and just want to make sure you don't screw up, Vanguard's fine. And the reality is like any company that offers index funds it's going to be so close. It's going to mm -hmm. be pennies difference. And so you can choose whichever one you want. And like, I feel bad because I know if someone's brand new, they're like, no, just tell me what the best is. I don't care. I don't need to, I don't need to know 10, just give me one. And so, you know, it, and I, I like hesitate to like give a specific recommendation right. because like I said, I like Fidelity, but also like the new robo advisors like Betterment, I think are great too. They charge like a little bit of a fee, but, um, but they make it, you know, if it's like Betterment and, forget it or 
Vanguard and have cash sitting in their Roth IRA and, right. and messing it up. Betterment would be way better, right? And so like, that's right. why like, I don't love Vanguard for that reason. I think they've kind of like missed the boat on helping their- And some people are so caught up on like the user friendliness. And so I hate Betterment's fees. Like I used to have Betterment and I can do so much better with either Fidelity or Vanguard. But if you're like a millennial who just wants it to be easy and clean and pretty with some nice charts and that will make you stick to your investing plan, by all means, hop on the Betterment train. I was there for a little while and then I was like, this is ridiculous. I can do a Fidelity cheaper. However- it is a beautiful, shiny website and it totally distracts you. <laughs> I agree. I mean, a point so, like investing $500 a month with a 0.25 fee is always going to invest, always, sorry, is always going to beat investing 300 a month with zero fee, right? Like right. that 0.25 fee is, is, is like not going to be that big of a deal. And so if, if it means you are actually investing or you're not screwing something up, it's way better. And I honestly think, I, mean, I think Betterment's kind of tough because they've spent so much money on marketing and building their thing. Like yeah. they kind of need to make some money, but I think eventually they'll probably bring their fees down when, when right. uh, um, competition dictates. Right. If Vanguard ever gets their ducks in a row and makes like a beautiful user-friendly website, everyone's in trouble because Fidelity's website is so much easier to use. I love, I have um, yeah. all my IRA rollovers from like previous employers have all gone to Vanguard. But then through my employer and then my own like individual IRAs, I've all done through Fidelity just because it's, it's nice and clean. And yeah. that's what my employer's offered. And I really like their website after using it with that. So it's a hit or nice. miss. I'm like, I like a little bit of both. Mix it nice. up. Shed, yeah. Share the love. <laughs> I have a but, Vanguard account simply just to like take screenshots and like teach people <laughs> how to invest, but I still. Nice. I use Fidelity too, but yeah. Very good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I have one final question. I just switched my final question too. So you're like the second person I've asked because you did. Uh -oh. people always end up with like corny ending points. And so mine's kind of fun. I think it's not anything scary. And so my final question is, um, so 2020, my goal was to outsource everything that I hate in life. Um, so my big thing was I hired like a housekeeper and like, don't clean my own house anymore. And, um, I think lawn mowing is next on the list of things. So, but again, like talking about, you know, those little things you might've done in your personal life where you're like, it's not worth my time to do this. So I've decided to outsource something you don't like. I don't know if you do anything like that. Well, I, didn't, I, I listened to your old question and I, I haven't heard this question. I know. <laughs> what do I outsource? I don't like. You can answer my old question too, if you want. <laughs> I think your old question was like, just name a, name a fun fact or something. Right. It was um, easy. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, what's something I outsource? I mean, I, I guess I, I didn't have a house cleaner until coronavirus. Um, oh, yeah. I'm trying to think of something. I mean, that's a really good example. How long, have you, how long do you have your house cleaner pre-coronavirus? Like less than a year. I, I've been pretty cheap. Yeah. Um, I want to say that's the hard thing is we're very frugal people. So, yeah. or maybe somewhere you in life you splurge that people wouldn't expect, but yeah, I think maybe the thing that I outsource is online data storage. And mm -hmm. so I think my files are yes. important, whether they're photos or documents or old emails or whatever. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people try to like save it to hard drives and, and like swap out their phone and blah, blah. And, and I was like, you know what? I want it to be on the cloud. I want my, if my phone and my laptop go in the ocean, I want to be able to, I live in San Diego. So that's yeah. the example I use. I want to be able to just like go get a new device, like type in my account info and have all my files right there. And so, yeah, I, I pay like 10 bucks a month to Google for um, cloud storage which is like two terabytes or something and so it's like a you know historically speaking it's this massive amount of data 
And you know, there's a little, you know, I can't put all two terabytes on my computer, so you have to kind of choose how it syncs. It takes a little bit of effort there. Um, but I, you know, I take great, you know, and, uh, maybe the conspiracy theorists will say maybe I shouldn't have all my files <laughs> in Google Hands. But if, if Google wants to ruin my life, they're they yeah. were there years ago. Like I'm sure there's already... a conspiracy. They're gonna make a video on you yeah, getting all your stuff hacked. I think that's interesting because as you say that, I have my email up. Um, I have a couple monitors on my computer, and I literally have this banner that's like your storage is almost full, and I'm refusing to pay for it. So I keep deleting things, and I'm kind of down to, I don't want to delete any more stuff. Like I like uh, my files, and so I think that might join the list of things that I've outsourced for the year is stops because I spend so much time looking through my Google Drive being like, what gets cut this month? So yeah. I don't have to pay for probably really cheap storage. So maybe yeah. that will inspire me to get rid of this little banner and just yeah. suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've lost data before. I've lost photos. Like in college, I had like a couple years of my college photos and I like reformatted a hard drive by mistake or something and like lost them all. And like, it was yeah. devastating. I would have spent, paid thousands of dollars to get those back. And so it's like, you know, you know, it's kind of like, pound foolish or penny penny wise and pound foolish whatever right um, where you're like you're like oh i'm trying to save the, the few bucks a month but then when it burns you're like oh i would have given anything right and i have things i'm saving to my desktop now that i normally put on my drive and that's not a good choice because i'm on like my work computer so i need to yeah. get i need to bite the bullet on that one do it probably do i'm coming to the dark side i'll send you a message on instagram saying jeremy i came to the dark side on the google storage <laughs> <right>. this month <laughs> you can afford it it's one of those things in terms of big things little things it's, it's still a little yes. thing awesome well do you did you have a fun fact prepared now i'm curious oh uh i was gonna say about how a couple years ago for halloween i dressed up as a giant cvs receipt and oh i feel like there's gosh. people who i feel like there's people who know me from personal finance club and know me from the cvs receipt and don't connect on the same person really um, yeah but i dressed up as this giant 12 foot CVS receipt that I made like on printers and taped together and everything. Have you ever shared uh, a photo of your CVS receipt outfit on your Instagram? I did actually. Well, I actually have a video cause I walked into CVS wearing it um, and then had them scan my extra bucks and like my giant uh, yeah. barcode actually scans, like shout oh. out to my, my, the engineering of the costume. And Very I posted good. to YouTube and like the next, it got like 900,000 views in one day on YouTube. Um, and I was on like time.com and good morning America. And like, it just, it was like, it went like crazy viral on November 1st, like, cause October 31st was Halloween, November 1st, yeah. like my phone was just like, just smoking Blowing all day. And then, and then November 2nd, no one cared again. <laughs> so oh, that's very, awesome. The last time I was at CVS, I'm like, is there an option that I don't have to print your mile long receipt? Because I was I just like, I just feel like it's such a waste of paper. And the lady's like, oh, it's too late. It's already printing. I'm like, I'm usually not that worried about or something. They like, I think they have some like, some marketing where like, oh, you don't have to. But like, I haven't figured out how to do it. It's like. I, well, that now gives me my homework. I'm going to Google your photo and it might okay. get posted <laughs> again because that's fantastic. You can, you can find <laughs> so you it. have two claims to fame in addition to your account online. It's <laughs> true. Beyond business. Yes. <laughs> Gosh, did you all just love this episode? I hope you're enjoying each of these podcasts as much as I am. If you are, please go subscribe to the podcast and spread the word by sharing your thoughts on Instagram. If you are not already aware, I'm pretty much obsessed with Instagram. So seriously, come find me. Instagram is the place where I'm going to announce every new podcast episode. I also share new products as I post them into my store. And I also am just going to be oversharing way too much about my personal life as a DIY landlord and a working boss mom. 
Thanks so much for listening.